Hello and welcome to a special 2013 edition of Spiffing Review. After over a year away from the pod wave, Simon and I have returned with a catch-up edition of the show, looking at some of the movies we didn't get round to reviewing over the last year. As you can probably guess, we spent a bit too long waffling and ended up with a nearly hour-long show. So, we've cut it into two. This, the first part, contains our thoughts on a year's worth of movies, and the second part has the trailer park and a review of Pacific Rim. I hope you enjoy... Simon and Wayne's Spitting Review, with your hosts, Simon Jones and Wayne Bolt. Hello! Hello! And welcome to the 2013 edition of Spiffing Review. With me, Simon Jones. And me, Wayne Bolt. Yeah. We're back with, what, the fourth series of Spiffing Review? Oh, I think that we counted as the fourth, although I think the third series only had about two episodes in yes, it. Yes, indeed. And uh, there's been a little bit of a gap. Not not too bad. But we've made a concerted effort to come back with a bumper edition in which we're going to be taking a look at Pacific Rim. And specific. Yeah, Specific Rimming. Uh, obviously visiting the trailer park and yep. doing a quick catch-up on some of the movies that have come out since the last episode, which was around about June last year. Yes, indeed. And uh, assuming this one goes okay, we'll hopefully get back into the swing of doing one or two a year. Yes. Or maybe more, if, if we're lucky. Yeah, let's not lucky. get carried away here, right. Wayne. Okay. Right. So, a quick catch-up on some of the films which have been out since we last um, did one of our shows. I think, first of all, there was Prometheus. Yes, this was a Ridley Scott epic, the precursor to the Aliens uh, franchise, written by Damon Lindelof, I think, from Lost. Yep, which is probably where most of my issues with it can be traced to. Mm. Now, I haven't seen Prometheus. Have I still haven't got my answer. No, I've got the Blu-ray sitting over there on my shelf, uh, waiting to go, but um, people have been a little... A little scathing of it. Um, but luckily, one of our correspondents in Ipswich, uh, JJ, has uh, sent us in... One of our foreign correspondents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, has sent us in a review, which uh, which we'll read it now. Now, we haven't read this, so we may have to censor it as we go along. Um, so, where do we start then? Uh, Prometheus is Marmite for cinema. You either loved it or hated it. I loved it. That's JJ, because I've not seen it. And here's the why. Uh, I purposely avoided any online commentary on the movie, and at the slightest whiff of such discussions sparking at the water cooler, I'd legged it. When discussions opened in the office area, I duly stuffed either headphones or fingers in my ears. Suffice that the only information I had on the film prior to paying an, extra- hang on, an extortionate amount of money for, uh, for stale, puffed, salt-covered maize was the trailer and the knowledge that it was an alien prequel. That's quite a sentence, then. That's not bad. I think I missed out a couple of full stops, but there you go. <laughs> um, oh, and the whole Titan mythology for what Prometheus was. I think we sort of kind of ruined the whole show <laughs> of that by interrupting on that paragraph. But that was a good paragraph. We like that paragraph, Yeah, well JJ. done, JJ. Right. That's one of your best paragraphs. All right, let's see if this one betters it. The film starts out with some truly 4K-worthy picturesque uh, scenes while the guy three rows in front discusses his recent barium exploits of what we assume is Earth. I'm not going to spoilerise this review, so I'll cut now on to the archaeologists finding an impossible map of a group of planets, and then on to the spaceship named Prometheus, in a kind of red dwarf kind of shot, headed for said group of planets, with a ragband group of specialist money-driven contractors on board, none of whom appear to have the slightest clue as to why they are there. They approach and land on this famed planet, the entire process of which somehow reminds me, uh, JJ, of the Heart of Gold landing on Magrafia. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. At that point, he unclenches his fist from his towel. Who, JJ? Yeah, I'm not sure what he was doing at the time. I'm hoping it's a Hitchhiker's reference. 
Yeah, otherwise mm. you didn't really need to include that. <laughs> no. <do you? laughs> right, um, they all get down to the surface and they're all quite excited about meeting some aliens. I presume the crew have been brainwashed with MIB or some such guff. Uh, until they uncover some rather unsavoury truths about what the planet is. SFX aside, I think the story is about belief. It's about what makes a soul. It's about what happens when you die. Oh, that's a bit like Lost. Yeah. Oh, spoilers. Um, Frank, if you're listening, sorry about that. Um, uh, if you don't keep your eyes open you'll miss it and be drawn into the predictable spiral of events which leads to the catastrophic demise of the crew I just have to point out that if Frank isn't listening <laughs> no one's listening <laughs> it's probably true maybe Frank is um, the image sound and production are all beautiful and some of the delicate SFX paid off tenfold Maybe it's a bit rich of this type of film to tackle a philosophical topic that's easy for me to say um, but hey they did and I think it's quite poignant I did go to see the 2D and the 3D version, in that order. What a fanboy. <laughs> uh, Imho, the 2D won over. Uh, won me over, I'm guessing he's trying to say that. But, uh, yes, okay. The 3D was quite subtle, but didn't really add anything to the storytelling beyond sore eyes. 3D should probably be reserved for kids' movies and sports these days. Uh, here. Uh, if only to nobble the types of eyeballs that tend to watch this type of tripe. Yeah, nobbling eyeballs. Mm, his no, 3D rant begins. How cinemas think that they can get away with charging a tax or watching movies in 3D is beyond me. Sigh. End of 3D rant. Lots of fanboys complain that the plot contradicts the alien stroke predator universe, and certainly fitting it into the AVP series requires quite a leap of faith in chronology of the series. Further sigh. After I'd watched the 3D version, a guy behind me stated in a loud and inappropriate tone, well, that was a predictable pile of shit. He obviously had his eyes shut. He was also a twat. Oh, hello. Hello. Uh, I have not proofread any of the above, and this constitutes a full-on brain burp, so feel free to cut some or... Oh, hang on, I probably shouldn't be saying that bit. Um, Thank you, JJ. (laughs) Was Um, that you saying we should have shorted it? uh, Probably. Right. I'm probably saying we should have read it through first and decided what bits to keep in and what bits to to get rid of. Um, So, yeah, that's JJ's view. So, you've seen the film? Um, Yeah, well, the Marmite thing's fairly appropriate because I did think it was fairly rubbish. Uh, it looks amazing, but every Ridley Scott film ever made looks amazing. Um, that's something he always gets completely right. Um, basically, all my problems with the film can be traced back to a, a single scene or event in the film, where mm-hmm. you have these highly trained scientists, explorers, biologists, etc., etc. They go into this alien spaceship. There's a whole bit where they talk about how they're mapping the ship using this special technology. And then... About five minutes later in the film, two of these characters, who have all this technology, they're connected through suits, etc., get lost in the spaceship. Even though they've just mapped it in 3D, they're connected through radio to the ship. It's completely impossible for them to have got lost. Um, but it was needed for the plot, so they got lost. Oh, right. Okay. And it's, it's that kind of story. Oh, OK. Where things happen just because they need to get to the next bit which they thought of, which was probably quite a cool scene. Mm-hmm. It might be a cool scene, but it means that the whole thing doesn't string together. So it's essentially one of those films where if you watch an individual scene, like if you went around someone's house and they said, look at this scene, it's amazing. It is amazing. But when you put them all together into a film, it just doesn't work whatsoever and there's no cohesive narrative to it at all. Yeah, there was quite a lot of buzz around it before the film uh, was released uh, and even uh, sort of leading up to the, the release of it uh, in filming production. Um, but it all seems to have died a death since mm. the film has actually uh, yeah. come out. So do you think... Ridley visited that universe once too often and probably should have left well alone or do you think it's going to get better because aren't they planning on doing a couple more yeah I think so I think I mean, it's all to do with the script to be honest because it's 
wonderfully well made and the cast is really good and there's no particular sort of production aspect that is bad um, it's all down to the story which is just bobbins and makes no sense and there's weird plot twists that are just nonsensical and yeah it's, it's very much one of those films where every issue comes back to the script and something it's a problem I had with Lost as well which is that it's all about mystery but I never felt very confident that the writers of Lost were very good at writing mysteries. Oh no, I think they were very good at writing mysteries because I think the mysteries uh, were the uh, best parts of the show. It's just what happened with Lost was they ended up telling a different story. They ended up telling the story about the characters and what happened to them on their personal journeys and um, it lost lost its way with the mythology it was building up and the mystery around things like the Dharma Initiative, the time travel, and, you know, the polar bears. And this is what a lot of the fans were really interested in. Uh, so I think they universally created a show, which they the backdrop uh, became more interesting than actually the the main story. Well, that's interesting because that's essentially what happened with Prometheus because everyone was so excited about it and all this kind of backstory they were adding into the alien universe and all these kind of hints about how it connected up and what's this planet about? What are these giant creatures that seem to have created aliens and maybe other races and all, all this kind of mystery It's the building up the mystery. They do really well, mm-hmm. which again in lost, you know, the first few seasons is building up all this stuff and it's really intriguing, but it's maybe the resolution and quite how they kind of pay off that mystery element that, that they kind of lose their way and almost get distracted by something else. Yep. And rather than following through the mystery, they kind of just, go off on a different tangent. So do you think uh, they're victims of their own success in creating a fantastic world around what's going on? I think so. I and think that's what a... people latch on to. Maybe they need to concentrate maybe on expanding that side of things more and not trying to tell the character-driven story. Potentially. I mean, I think you, you obviously need characters to keep it interesting as well. Um, I think it's part of the problem that the Matrix sequels had as well, which is that in the first one they set up this really interesting universe. Yep and everyone's imagination started firing. But then by the time you got to the sequels, all the stuff that you'd thought up in your head after seeing the first film was actually more interesting than what the films ended up doing. Yeah. And similarly with Prometheus, um, I think, and probably with Lost as well, um, it has that kind of aspect, which is the setup of the mystery is so interesting that you, your own imagination starts going. Yes. And then you can only be disappointed by where it yeah. actually ends up going. Yeah. So, yeah. But it is lovingly well made. I mean, it's... Blu-ray is the way to see it now because okay. it does look stunning. So it's worth seeing. It's worth getting that Blu-ray out of its packaging to. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just don't expect anything that makes much sense. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, so another film that came out last year that was uh, again very very anticipated was The Dark Knight Rises, the third of Christopher Nolan's Batman movies. Um, I really liked the first two of his Batman films. Um, generally, I like all of his films. Uh, to varying degrees. I thought The Prestige was excellent. Inception I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, his earlier films, Memento, is really good. Um, the one, Insomnia, with Al Pacino, that's good. Yeah. Um, all his films have this kind of puzzle-like nature. Again, mystery stuff. But generally, he's really good at kind of piecing together the mystery at the end of the film. Uh, maybe leaving a few loose strands open at the end for interpretation. Uh, but, yeah, in, in his kind of body of work, Nolan's always been really good at that kind of storytelling. And then The Dark Knight Rises doesn't have any of that at all. No, The Dark Knight Rises is very interesting. Um, when I saw it, I just wasn't impressed by it at all. 
Mm. Um, yes, it looks good. Some of the set pieces and that yeah, again, from a really production good. point of view, it's very well made. Yeah, but the I just found it to be a cliche-ridden tale of nonsense, and I just couldn't get interested, and I couldn't. I I, I just didn't care about any of the characters. Mm. Uh, it just seemed, for some reason, to uh, take any emotional attachment you gain to them in the first two films, uh, to, to Bruce Wayne and, uh, and to Alfred, and it just sort of chucked out the window. Yeah. I think it was a mistake, um, sort of losing Alfred for most of the film. Um, I, I think, yeah, uh, it, it just didn't work. Um, um, I feel particularly sorry in, in the whole thing for, um, oh, what's his name? I played Bane. Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy. Yeah, yeah I think mean, it was, um, I, I don't know why it was him. I think um, he was sort of wasted in, in the Bane role. A lot of people have said, um, have commented about the, the, the dialogue coming through Bane's mask and it being hard to understand what he was saying. He didn't need to bother because what he was saying was total anyway. Yeah, well, the thing his character motivation didn't make any sense. No. Because he had this kind of weird, on the one hand, he was trying to liberate people, but at the same time, he's going to blow them all up. Yeah. And then it's revealed later in the film but everyone's seen it by now and I don't really care um, that essentially he looked after one of the other characters when she was a child because yeah. he, he had this kind of paternal instinct to want to look after her and yet you know, there's loads of kids in Gotham City but he wants to just blow them all up it yeah. doesn't make it, any no, sense no, no, it doesn't make sense um, it just doesn't draw a suitable conclusion to, no. to, to the trilogy and it's a shame I thought the first film that was was very good yeah first um, one was fun second one I really liked because it had that complexity it had an unusual complexity for a comic book movie I mean I love comic book movies as anyone that listens to this yes. will know um, but The Dark Knight added a whole kind of well complexity to it through the Joker character and kind of widening out the scope of the film but not in a like The Avengers has massive scope but it's about aliens invading and blowing everything up yes. that's the kind of scale that's talking about the Dark Knight added scale through characters interacting and through a realistic analysis of what might happen in this kind of circumstance. Yeah. It was really interesting. And yeah, Dark Knight Rises has kind of just lost its way completely. And it's yeah. very, me- very messy. And uh, it's also the, the first of two films which have been uh, turning me off the DC universe uh, mm-hmm. and making me appreciate the Marvel universe more. As you know, Simon, as listeners of, of the show... Uh, no, I'm much more of a DC uh, fanboy, but The Dark Knight Rises and the next one we're going to talk about um, have done their best to make me not care about the DC universe anymore. And I know that's, yeah, you, the, the comic fanboys out there should be saying, oh, I should be looking at the comics and the graphic novels and judging it all on that. And yes, that's what I should be doing. But in terms of films, uh, this is predominantly a film based podcast. Um, Marvel's winning, certainly, especially when we go on to talk about Man of Steel. Yeah. Now, you haven't seen this, have you yet? I've not, no. No, it came out during uh, intense baby-related activities. Mm. Um, what, the making of, or the... Uh, no, no, post. post. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, so, very much uh, like JJ says uh, with Prometheus, uh, this is very much a Marmite movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it is pretty much split down the middle, that people are really loving it or just hating it. Um, I come out in the hating it camp. It, A, shouldn't have been... The way the film was was made, uh, it didn't need to be Superman. It could have been a new superhero of any sort. Um, comes in, or it could have been any in, alien invasion-based movie. Um, it didn't have that heart 
and Soul, which a Superman movie would have. I mean, the fact that it's not called Superman and they hardly ever refer to him as Superman and it's all, he's in the Man of Steel and it's all very dark and dank. Um, Superman doesn't work in the Dark Knight universe. Mm. Um, as in the Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight universe. It, it, Superman is, it, is all about a proper symbol of hope and being great and wonderful. Um, it's where we come from uh, with, uh, in the 30s, wasn't it? Um, or the yeah, Jewish like oppression lift, and that sort of lifting thing. Lifting people up and giving them something yeah. to root for. Yeah. But what's odd is that when you say he doesn't work in the Dark Knight universe, but of course it's not in the Dark Knight universe because although Nolan produced it, it's essentially a completely new thing and they're now going to be bringing in Batman yes. back into it, but a new Batman. So it would almost make more sense if they had designed it to fit into the Dark Knight oh, universe yeah. as established. Yes, but the way the film was shot, they were basically pitching it in the same way as the Dark Knight was. It was that mm. whole dark, Kind of, uh, it, it can very easily just coexist. Yeah, it's, it's, I think. Um, right. So anyway, uh, getting back to why I think the Man of Steel doesn't work. It doesn't work on two uh, levels. The first of which was they didn't build the narrative up uh, in the way that you would invest in the character. It was sort of told from the view of flashbacks all the time. So we're um, we join Clark when he's already on Earth, um, traveling through, uh, saving people, but not in the Superman guise yet. And then we get flashbacks. Now, flashbacks can sometimes work in movies really well, just to give, just to fill things in. But when you, you're starting to... Um, the narrative gets to a certain point, and you're really excited to what's happening next, and then you go back and see what's going on again, you've got to build that whole sort of tension up again and start investing in it. And after three or four different goes at it, you, you just don't care. Mm-hmm. And it always seemed to be at the point at which you're starting to invest it and get interested in the characters, they flashback to something else, and it's starting on over again. The the Krypton stuff was really cool with uh, Russell Crowe in it. I thought that was all really good stuff. Uh, in fact, they had been better off just doing a film just with what was going on in Krypton and that sort of thing. That had been pretty cool. Um, the second big thing I really don't like the Man of Steel about is the third act. People are often talking about this third act. This is where uh, Zod and Superman are having their fight in Metropolis where the level of destruction which these two... Um, superhero-powered beings are having, it flattens Metropolis. And it's ridiculous. And you're just watching it thinking this is just... It's too OTT. It's a sort of destruction you expect in a Michael Bay mm-hmm. uh, film. But at least in a Michael Bay film with the Transformers, things are huge and things are going all over the show anyway. So you expect a huge, huge level of destruction. But, but Superman and Zod just weren't built up enough to be that mighty to cause that... Le- it looked like a nuke had hit the city. And I know what they're trying to do is show the, you know, the collateral destruction which happens all around, but it just didn't work. It was, it, in fact, it was boring. Hmm. Yeah, no, I look forward to seeing it from that point of view because I think the superhero fight I've seen in films so far, which was kind of closest to how I'd like a Superman fight to be, is actually the um, the end of the film whose name I've just forgotten. The shot on Handicam... Superhero. Oh, thing. Chronicle. Chronicle, that's the one. Yeah, the, the conclusion of that, even though that's a vastly lower budgeted film and they keep the scale relatively small, but the kind of innovation in the big fight at the end in the finale was really exciting. And But they kept it grounded at mm. the same time whilst kind of escalating everything. Yeah. Uh, and I was watching that thinking this on a, you know, a slightly bigger level would be great for a Superman style fight, but it sounds like they went. <laughs> rather too far yeah rather too far and it just didn't work and uh, to the point at which people around us in the cinema 
uh, were starting to check their phones, starting just not paying any attention at all to what was happening on the screen. And to a certain extent, I could sympathise with them. They just couldn't just get interested or, or invested in the film. And it was, um, it, was, it, was, it was a bit of a shame. But as I say, there's loads of people that love it. So for every person like myself who thinks it's uh, just a not a very good film, uh, there's going to be loads of people who love it. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see what they do with the sequels, because maybe they'll tweak the formula slightly and uh, make something that will work a bit better for you. Yeah. We shall wait and see. Right. So carrying on with superhero movies, because there's quite a few of them at the moment, even as someone that loves superhero movies, uh, there are so many of them at the moment, it's slightly ridiculous. Mm. Uh, so another recent one was Iron Man 3, uh, following on from The Avengers, the first first post-Avengers Marvel film, I think. Um, it's kind of Marvel trying to prove that they still have something to do and something mm. stories to tell. Uh, and it's kind of the polar opposite of the whole Christopher Nolan dark comic book style. Yes. Um, something I something I really love about the Marvel movies is that they are fun and they are cartoony, but they properly embrace that. Yeah. And it's not about winking at the camera like 1990s superhero movies where they were almost embarrassed to be superhero movies. You know, the Marvel stuff fully embraced their universe but they know how to have fun with it. Yeah, I think Marvel are on a bit of a roll at the minute for me. Uh, I've been really enjoying their films, I think, since Fall has been out. Um, the, the Iron Man films are getting better. Uh, the Avengers I really liked, and the, the Marvel films are just on a roll. They seem to have managed to get a... Um, are just hitting the ground running at the moment. And I wonder if it's because they've got Marvel Studios winning it all. So they've got a clear direction as to what's happening, yeah. as opposed to individual ideas. That's the thing. It feels like regardless of the individual quality of each Marvel film, they're all kind of lifting each other up. Yeah. So they, uh, once taken as a whole, um, they they make everything better. A bit like the Lord of the Rings films, in a way. Once you take it as a, a whole story that's on running, the whole thing works better, yeah. rather than taking it as individual movies. And, mm-hmm. and I think if the Avengers hadn't worked, the whole Marvel thing would have collapsed. Yeah. Um, but because it worked, all the kind of build-up, and some of the criticism of the earlier films, which was that they were kind of uh, paving the way for the Avengers that criticism kind of evaporated because you went, oh, well, it worked. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, if it hadn't, then it would have made all yeah. those films irrelevant. Anyway, back to Iron Man 3. Yes. Um, best end credit sequence of any movie oh, ever indeed. made. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> absolutely love that. And again, it kind of highlights that well, maybe, sense of humour. Yes, yeah. Uh, I'm probably not as good as some of the um, Zucker, Abraham Zucker films. Um, like Naked Gun yeah, um, yeah they're pretty good they're no, pretty those good. things where you have to read all the credits all the way maybe through. we need to do uh, an in credit special okay okay <laughs> um, but yeah I think it, what was nice about Iron Man 3 is they managed to get in some interesting kind of serious character stuff with Tony Stark trying to come to terms with what happened in the Avengers yeah and he was essentially freaking out about it which was an unusually serious topic to have in a Marvel movie and an mm. Iron Man movie whilst at the same time keeping the film being really, really fun. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of balance, that is quite Joss Whedon-esque. It's something that he's always been really good at, which is that in, in an episode of a TV show like Buffy or Firefly, he could switch from like action to comedy to tragedy to you know all these different genres really effortlessly, and it would still feel like the same show. Yes. Um, and that's something that Iron Man 3 did quite well, and they did yes. switch from action to comedy the, to tension to whatever. The, the only thing which stops Iron Man 3 from being a really, really good film, though, I think, is, is the, the denouement of it, mm. where it ends up being a Transformers movie, yes. in effect, yeah. um, where you've got lots of the Iron Man suits um, are fighting. Well, they're fighting humans, though, but it's still, it wasn't Tony Stark as Iron Man. 
uh, it was Tony Stark and all of his Iron Men in, in a rampaging robot army. And it did sort of take away from it uh, a tad, but the rest of the film, I think, more than made up for it. Yeah. So it's a yeah, good less. And it rolls into that uh, marvellous um, end credit sequence, <laughs> which uh, you got to see it to to really appreciate it but it sort of goes along the lines of a like a 1980s star cop show ending credits kind of thing and it's just, it's fantastic it's worth sitting through all the rest of the film uh, just to get to that bit yep right so that's Iron Man 3 oh I think the most oh no there's a couple of Superman-ish movies oh, I'm going to bring Kick-Ass 2 into this yep, now while we're talking about it. Superman movies um, Kick-Ass 2 the follow up of course to Kick-Ass which uh, we love we really love Kick-Ass um, Kick-Ass 2 is it, it it's a good film. Uh, I mean, uh, it basically carries on in the Kick-Ass world um, with Kick-Ass and Hit Girl um, sort of growing up a little bit. Um, we get huge amounts of heroes and villains uh, coming to the fore. We get lots of big fights and stuff. It's so much an extension of the Kick-Ass film, but I just think it loses something. Um, I mean, it loses that spark of originality which Kick-Ass had. Mm. Um, and the level of violence and language is very shocking in Kick-Ass and that actually I think added to the film um, in Kick-Ass 2 it doesn't really add anything to what was there before uh, the story wasn't quite as good um, maybe we're missing the fact that Mark Miller was only a producer and not directing um, and also Jonathan Ross's wife Jane Goldman had left the scriptwriting team so really? it was a different scriptwriter and it sort of showed it wasn't. It just didn't seem quite as enjoyable um, uh, but it's still a good film. Um, we're sort of thinking where Kick-Ass would be like a 9 or a 10. I mean, Kick-Ass 2, you've got to look, it's a 6 or 7. Yeah, I think the thing with Kick-Ass is that it didn't need a sequel. Mm. Because it was all about kind of ripping apart the superhero genre and turning it on its head and highlighting how ridiculous it was whilst doing it in a slightly different way and breaking all the conventions. And doing a sequel almost means it comes back into just being another superhero franchise. Yeah. And that kind of defeats the purpose of it. Yeah. Um, it feels like if they'd come back in 20 years' time and made a sequel with them all really old, yeah. <laughs> something, something like that could have worked. But just pumping out a, a, a follow-up story doesn't appeal to me. Just no. Like, regardless of how good or bad it is, it, it doesn't need to exist. No, certainly not. Okay, so I think that is it now for superhero movies. Yeah. Um, we just got a couple more films we want to mention. Yep, so first up we have The Hobbit. Yes, this is going back to Christmas last year, around that sort of time. Uh, the Hobbit, of course, written by J.R.R.R.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and it, as we were saying just now, Kick-Ass 2, it's carrying on in the same vein as Kick-Ass, just adding stuff to it. The Hobbit, of course, is the prequel. <laughs> the prequel. The Hobbit was written before Lord of the Rings, of course, but in film terms, it's obviously the prequel. What they managed to do is take uh, a book which should be easily turned into one film, and they somehow are managing to turn it into three huge epics. They're bringing out an extended yeah. version of it. Yeah, um, yeah. if you love Lord of the Rings, then you're going to like The Hobbit. Um, but The Hobbit, I think, two films max, and they could really do it as a couple of really big fights they could add stuff in. Um, I think it's another example of a film that is very well made, but it just feels a, a, a bit indulgent. Yes, indeed. Uh, with a bit more restrictions, really. Uh, I think it would be a stronger film. Um, there's there's so much you could cut out of it. Yeah, not it's not lot, because it's bad, but just because tighter pacing, it'd be so much better. A lot of the a lot of the first uh, instalment which we saw, um, the, the Hobbit doesn't really have a a main protagonist until you get to Smaug, mm-hmm. uh, the dragon. But even then, he doesn't really do much apart from 
um, sit on lots of treasure, have a chat with Bilbo, and then go and burn the village before he gets shot in the heart. Now, spoilers, <laughs> by the way, but you know, The Hobbit's been around for ages. And we don't know what else is going to be in the film, uh, to be fair. <laughs> that might not happen anymore. <laughs> no, it might not. <laughs> uh, and this is why they haven't had uh, that goblin champion in there who was chasing him. He, he's just appeared from notice as a construct um, to try and add some sort of threat continuing threat from out three films. Uh, what they're doing, of course, is they're taking the Hobbit book and they're taking a lot of the extra stuff from the appendices uh, of Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and things like that and just trying to tell a huge, complete story. The Hobbit, I think, would work once all the extended versions have been done and they were out and about. Um, a director's cut where it reduces it down to just the core Hobbit story, I think that would be quite good. Yeah. Um, I do have an issue with the uh, characterization of the dwarves. Um... The, the dwarves aren't meant to be comedy. No. Uh, they're meant to be uh, really miserable, dour, grumpy, short little buggers. Yeah, this um, is a problem that Lord of the Rings had as well. Um, in that a lot of the time, Gimli was used as comic relief. Yeah, uh, not all the time, and the moments when he wasn't being used as comic relief worked so much better. Um, but yeah, it seems that Peter Jackson just finds short people really funny. Mm. He's not exactly tall himself, though, is he? No, no, no. no. So, uh, so yeah. well, it's worth watching, but yeah, I also felt it—it it lacked some of the not gritty realism because that's not the right term. But Lord of the Rings had um, like a very physical sense to it in, in just the locations mm. and the sets and the visual effects and all that kind of thing. It it felt like you could reach out and touch these places that they were in. In The Hobbit, it all felt very fabricated and artificial and it's not because of a quality like, issue I mean, it's really well done but it's because there's a lot of padding they're it could be, at it, it could be it's it's this lingers to, too much yeah, and all this stuff it's trying to pad too much stuff out and it's adding a lot of stuff which wasn't, didn't need to be there um, some of the bits they are adding um, all to do with stuff in Dog Gildor which is where Sargon was hanging out before he went back to um, Mordor um, that should be quite interesting and if it's done right, it's done nice and dark. Yeah. Then it should be it should be fine. I think it's another example of it's it's kind of hard to actually judge the Hobbit until we've seen the other two. Yes, because the other two might make the whole thing feel like it's paced really well and it's really clever the way they've added mm-hmm. stuff and it might all work. Um, at the moment, the first film just feels really strangely paced mm-hmm. because we don't have the context of the other two. Yeah. Um, so. So that's another 12 hours you've got to find in your life then to get this film into context to enjoy it. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. Right, yes. okay. It seems like they can't make just a film these days. Mm. You know, whether it's superhero movies or fantasy, they can't just make a single film and make it really good. Okay, and that brings us on to the world's end. Uh, the last thing we're going to talk about in this particular section uh, of our review of films we've seen over the past year. Um, so this is the third in the Cornetto trilogy by Edgar Wright and Son Pegg. And it brings back a lot of the... Uh, the, the the stars in the previous films, like Nick Frost is back, um, Paddy Considine, and, and all sorts. So the film is essentially about a, a bunch of 40-year-olds meeting up to try and do a pub call they never managed to finish originally. Uh, and it quickly turns into an alien invasion movie. Happens. It happens, it happens indeed. Um, it, it's well worth seeing. Um, now, I saw it as part of one of the Conetto trilogies they were showing in the cinemas. And I think... I was probably a bit um, cornettoed out by the time I got to it. Uh, and my impression of the film isn't as good as I think it will be when I watch it again. Mm-hmm. It's a really good film. There was lots of laughs all the way through. But for some reason, Hot Fuzz was the film that really got everyone into it. And it set quite a high benchmark. 
And it's the second time I've seen Hot Fuzz, second or third time I've seen it, but certainly the second time at the cinema. And that was much better than I remember seeing it first time. So mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if The World's End is going to be one of those films where upon repeated viewing, it's going to get better and better and better. Yep. So um, it's a good film. It's worth seeing. I don't think I can really give it a fair review at the Yet. minute because uh, yeah. I'd rather just see it in the context of itself where I'm actually going to just enjoy the film as opposed to... Yeah. Um, I had the same thing film. with Hot Fuzz. Um, I enjoyed it the first time around and then on subsequent viewings, it's got better and better. Uh, I think... Edgar Wright's movies are definitely like that because mm. he layers in so much detail yes. that you... It's a bit... It's a very different kind of humour, but it's a little bit like the old Zucker Abrams, Zucker movies, Airplane, Naked Gun, etc., yeah. in that every time you watched it, you'd spot some new jokes. Yes, you can stand um, into multiple viewings. Yeah. One of the things which I'm really looking forward to watching again are the fight scenes. Uh, they, they, they come up with a pub kung fu kind of fight style, which works really, really well. And Nick Frost in it is... Uh, pretty damn good these fight scenes so it's well I'm really looking forward to watching it again for that there's a lot of good laughs um, the story sort of gets a bit expositionally towards the end which is a little bit disappointing that they had to solve it just by a lot of waffle when all the way up it had been in that, pretty much an action movie in, in the run up to it um, but once again that might just be because I, I, it, it was like six hours into a, a film <laughs> marathon exactly. so, so who knows one but, other movie that has suddenly sprung to mind that we must mention is Dread Oh, yes. Uh, this is uh, the new Judge Dredd film that came out starring Carl Urban as Dredd. And nobody watched it because people are idiots. Um, well, it was only on uh, release 3D at the cinema, wasn't it? You didn't get the chance yeah, to see it. Yeah, it made a big deal of the fact it's in 3D. And this was around about the time that everyone was starting to get. Mm. There bit. are 3Ds in Dredd. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, it's very, very good. It banishes all memories of the horrific Stallone Dredd movie. Uh, Carl Urban is absolutely perfect as Dread, mm. uh, given that most of his head is completely obscured by mm. the helmet for the whole film. It's all through his voice. It doesn't get his guitar out either. No. Were you expecting that? Right. Oh, that's not Carl Urban, is it? Is it not? No. Who are you thinking Keith, of? Um, the Keith Urban, the well-known country singer. Right, no. Well, anyway. It wasn't him. That, that could have been interesting. <laughs> it would be. Um, yeah, I watched this around the same time as I watched Man of Steel, um, and it has a huge amount of violence and destruction in it, but it works. It mm. just works. The context in which it it's all done and the way the, everything's blown up, yeah. it just works. And I think it's a much, much better film than Man of Steel. Yeah, Dread looks and feels and sounds like a movie made in the 1970s, but with modern filmmaking technology. It's kind of a nostalgic throwback whilst being very futuristic at the same time and it's very clever and it knows exactly what it's trying to do and it does it very well yes and there's a petition online to have a sequel made so go and sign it yes. whether you've seen the film or not just go and sign it so we can watch it yeah exactly thank you very much that's the end of part one check your podcast client of choice for part two